Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has, said Margaret Mead. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Peter Pronovo. Dr. Pronovo is a professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in the departments of anesthesiology and critical care medicine and surgery, and the medical director for the Center for Innovation in Quality Patient Care in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Pronovo, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. Tell us about the research study involving engineers observing care in the intensive care unit. Susan, what we saw was that that care is exceedingly complicated, that there's an awful large amount of data elements, often you know, in several hundred that clinicians are trying to keep in their head. They're busy and distracted and being called from one patient to another. And yet in, in, in all this chaos, we're somehow supposed to be able to reliably deliver patients what they need. And we don't have systems in place to do that. What have you done to improve care and safety in the ICU? The three principles that we really applied, Susan, were the following. The first is that we try to make sure hospital workers or healthcare workers have lenses to think in systems because to date we've been system blind, I'll call it. We see my own personal performance and we see the patient's risk factors influencing care, but we don't think broadly to say, could the lack of a protocol, could the environment, so being noisy or dark, could my fatigue, could training or supervision influence bad outcomes. And so we first get develop a set of lenses. The second is to get people to think of the principles of safe design in how they organize their work. And those principles come from many other safety industries like airline, nuclear chemical, railroad, and they have far more elegant models than we need, but they're, they're too complicated to fit in healthcare. So I've simplified them into three basic simple concepts. The first is standardize what we do. The second is to create independent checks for things that are really important, what we call key processes. So if something's important, make sure there's another check to make sure it happens. And the third is when things go wrong, make sure we learn from them. And then, Susan, the last concept, and it, we learned this so elegantly from aviation, is that those principles of standardizing and independent checks and learning from mistakes don't just apply to our technical work, but they also apply to our teamwork. That is, if you and I are communicating, the more we standardize that communication, the more we have checks or readbacks that you say, okay, Peter, I really understood what you said, and I'm going to act on it the fewer errors we're going to have. Surgeon and author Dr. Gawande has written about you and connected the B-17 bomber to your internationally known checklist. Tell us about this connection. What aviation did back in the 30s was recognize that they also were working in a complex environment that had a lot of technical skills that often exceeded the memory ability of the pilots. And so to make sure that pilots always did these things, they developed a checklist that has very simple lists that the pilots go through before they fly or do anything in a plane to say, okay, have I gone through all the safety protocols? Are the flaps up? Are the engine warning lights all okay? To make sure that the plane flies safely. Healthcare has been a bit reluctant to do that. And I think for a number of reasons. One is 
though these checklists seem simple, Susan, what underlies them is a belief in human fallibility. That is, no one's going to use a checklist if they think they're perfect because they wouldn't need one. And healthcare, for a lot of reasons, including some societal expectations, some our tort system, the way we culture young doctors through medical school and residency, is we've created this belief in the infallibility of physicians. And what we've seen is that the only way we're going to make progress in safety, or really any problem that any of us have, is first admitting that there is a problem and we're not perfect. And aviation did that. Anesthesia did that with having checklists. But more broadly, healthcare is just beginning to do that. But when you do, it's so liberating because you put away this myth that I'm never going to make mistakes and you take comfort in saying, well, here are these other decision aids that are going to help me give patients the right care all the time, which is really what we all want as physicians. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Peter Pronovo from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, discussing how he has improved care in the intensive care unit. Doctor, has it been difficult to persuade physicians to use the checklists? Yes, Susan, we thought that it initially would be because you probably have heard there's often physicians say, oh, I don't want to practice cookbook medicine, and I'm smarter than that. I have to think creatively, and all those things are valid. But what we've seen, Susan, is that when you make checklists that are true to the evidence, that we don't put things on the checklist that are gray or that are uncertain. The checklist has things that are pretty black and white, that there's a robust amount of evidence that we ought to be doing, and so physicians bought into that. And then secondly, we gave them valid feedback on performance, that we said, okay, let's make sure that this checklist isn't an end of itself, but it's really to make sure that patients improve their outcomes. And we're going to measure those outcomes, in this case, bloodstream infections, and we'll give you feedback, and we're going to measure them in a valid way so that at the end of the day, you could know how it's impacting your care. And I think those two things really galvanize physicians to support to say, hey, you know, I like this. And not only do I like it, it's helping me give the better care. What's the next checklist we can do in healthcare? Let's talk about the checklist regarding inserting lines. What's the national infection and fatality rate? Well, Susan, these catheter-related bloodstream infections cause an awful lot of morbidity and mortality nationally. It's somewhere estimated around 18,000 people die from these infections a year, and they cost somewhere between 2 to $3 billion. Now, now those estimates, there's some imprecision in them, but I think there's general consensus that that's about the right ballpark number. Now, the evidence of how to improve them has been known for years. We just haven't done it. Indeed, the, the evidence would say that the, the five key interventions that we called out for our study are done somewhere around 30% of the time at best. And what we started with was this uncertainty to say, how often are these infections preventable versus inevitable? In other words, some patients, despite our best evidence, Susan, are likely going to get infected because they're immunosuppressed, they have a catheter for a long time, and despite our best evidence, they may still get them. The community, I think, before our project said, well, yeah, most of them are inevitable, and and if we're at the national average, that's about the best we're going to do. What we said is, okay, no, 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 no. let's create a system 
that makes sure every patient all the time gets these five simple things on the checklist. And let's not debate about how many are preventable and inevitable. Let's just focus on giving the patients the evidence that they're supposed to. And then at the end of the day, we'll measure what these rates of infections are. We'll measure them with some scientific rigor and integrity, and we'll see how low they go. And my hunch is they're going to go dramatically lower. But you may be right. They may be all in the inevitable bucket, and we'll just have to then do some more basic research to find out how to prevent these. And what we found was that when we created a system where patients reliably got some simple things, simple things like washing your hands, cleaning your skin with chlorhexidine, using full barrier precautions, avoiding the femoral site, and taking out lines when you don't need them, nearly all of the infections were prevented. How many lines are put in ICU patients every year? I don't know the number off the top of my head, but in the editorial that accompanied my New England Journal paper, if you go to my December, it was the end of December New England Journal paper, there's an editorial that has how many lines are put in, but it's about half of all ICU patients have one. There's about 5 million ICU patients a year, so you can see an awful lot of people are exposed to these catheters. How successful have the checklists been? Well, Susan, the checklists have been remarkable, that when we put them in in Michigan, the rates dropped by about 70%, such that the median rate of infection now is zero in the state, and it's been that zero for several years now. Explain the role of nurses and the checklists. Yes, Susan, that was a keen insight because what we found is that much of the literature to translate evidence into practice has focused on physicians only, so educating physicians, giving physicians feedback. It was, a, in some senses, a, a narrow view. What we said is said, okay, well, based on that philosophy of how to make safe design, we need independent checks. So if washing your hands is important, it's too important just to rely on docs to remember it. We know they're human and they're, they're sometimes they're going to forget. So nurses, we want you to assist with physicians placing these lines. We'll give you the checklist. And when physicians do it, we want you to make sure that they comply with all these five things. And if they don't, you are empowered to stop takeoff. That is, you could have the physician go back and fix the defect. How do you respond to doctors who say, forget the paperwork, let's take care of that patient? Yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the key challenges in doing this work is to make the data collection or the checklist use part of routine care so that physicians see it as value rather than being a burden. I think much of the quality care work in this country has been sloppy science that really just burdened physicians with collecting data that was often either biased or not very scientifically sound. And so they rejected it. It made their day harder and they didn't see any benefits for their patient. What we've seen here is we've tried to find what I call the sweet spot, Susan, between being scientifically sound and feasible. And that's not an easy spot to to find, but when you find it, it resonates because docs see that the work adds value and they see the benefits for their patients. And, you know, my own view is that the value ought to be so self-evident that docs want to keep it. If we have to beat them over the head to keep using something, you got to go back to the drawing board and saying it's probably not working and it's certainly not going to be sustainable and you have to get a different model. We find a model that when you find that right balance, docs embrace it. They love it. It's used all the time and they're not only love it, but they're asking for the next checklist to use. So that's what you've been finding across the country. You're absolutely right, Susan. And I think because what we've done is we've done a more scientifically rigorous approach than has been done to date in quality and safety. If you had an opportunity to be in the room with the presidential candidates 
and they said, Doctor, what's your best advice to address this health care crisis we're in? What would you tell them? So that's a great question, Susan. I think the three major issues facing the U.S. healthcare system right now are cost of care, quality of care, and access to care. And all three of them need to be addressed. And so the cost of care issue, as you all know, that the costs are exceedingly going up to such an extent that we're pricing ourselves out of the market, that our businesses can't compete, or that people buying insurance just simply can't afford it. It's the majority of what their income is getting to to buy health insurance. And that we have to guarantee some access to insurance that's likely going to be a combination of both public and private programs. Dr. Pronovo, thank you so much for joining us to discuss how you're improving health care. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be here. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening. Listening.